Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hi, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I am a Littler Principal and Co-Chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity Practice Group. I also lead our firm's Diversity and Inclusion Service Solutions Group and partner with our clients to deliver meaningful diversity and inclusion training programs and initiatives in the workplace. Thanks for joining us today. The studies are clear. Companies with great diversity and inclusive practices outperform their peers by significant margins. Why? Because people perform best when they feel valued, empowered, and respected by their peers. And when we talk about these assessments, we are not simply talking about companies who are better at managing their talent. We're talking about higher performing companies measured by business and financial outcomes as well. Given the fact that an effective diversity and inclusion initiative is increasingly being regarded as a top to bottom business strategy and not just a people program, it begs the following question. Does the success of an organization's diversity strategy depend on who is running the show? Well, today we will be exploring the significance of diversity ownership in organizations. And to do that, we'll break up the discussion into three components. First, where does diversity and ownership reside within most organizations right now? Second, precisely how is an organization's commitment to diversity and inclusion affected by the department that controls it? Third, is the success of an organization's diversity and inclusions initiative ultimately dependent on who is in charge, and if so, how? Joining me for today's podcast is Deborah Pluchet-Moore, the System Chief of Staff of Carolina's Healthcare System. Located in Charlotte, North Carolina, Carolina's healthcare system is the country's second largest public healthcare system. And Deborah Pluchet-Moore has enjoyed a significant and illustrious career in talent management over the past 35-plus years throughout the country. Deborah, we are absolutely honored to have you participate in this discussion today. I am delighted to be a part of this important conversation, and thank you for the framework that puts diversity and inclusion at the forefront of what makes successful businesses perform at the highest level. Absolutely. So, Deborah, to do this, let's set the stage a little bit for our listeners uh, before we get into the challenges and opportunities associated with the issue of where diversity and inclusion resides within organizations. The diversity leader position and the departments they operate under vary vastly, according to current statistics. An estimated one quarter of companies don't have a diversity and inclusion function at all. And obviously, the smaller a company, the less likely it is to have a dedicated head of diversity. According to a recent Society of Human Resources Management study, more than three-fifths of organizations reported that HR is responsible for implementing diversity initiatives, followed by the president or CEO. Then after the implementation phase is completed, these are the entities responsible for leading them. So in most cases, 60% in fact, HR retains responsibility. The CEO or senior management rank next. Diversity councils come in third with 11%. Then chief financial officers or chief operating officers, 
at 6% and 4% respectively, followed by chief diversity officers at 5%. In about 10% of the cases, no one was tasked with responsibility for D and I. Now the CDO numbers are different for Fortune companies. 60% of Fortune 500 companies have a dedicated chief diversity officer. This number swells to 92% for Fortune 100 companies. And in most cases, the CDOs report either to the head of HR or other departments. In about 15% of those instances, CDOs report to the CEOs. Deborah, let me bring you in at this point for your thoughts on these current realities. Well, as you address the current realities, it is very affirming to the model we use at Carolina's healthcare system. In addition to being the system chief of staff, human resources reports directly to me, and I have led the human resources activity and practice within healthcare organizations over the last 25 years. So myself, starting in healthcare as a DNI diversity and inclusion vice president, it always became a part of what I was passionate about, what I was interested in, and what propelled incredible results based on the diversity of my own team and the commitment of diversity of the organizations where I worked. So we are the practical model that our Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion reports to the Chief Human Resources Officer and the Chief Human Resources Officer reporting up to the President and CEO. That model has served me well, it's served organizations well, and it provides the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion a practical platform to address many of the human resource issues that impact the workplace. So, you know, if I could just kind of take a moment to say when diversity and inclusion is run by a senior officer with the support of the organization inside of HR, that is where we have key decisions regarding the teammate experience. So compensation, are we paying with equal perspectives of the value of the role, the tenure of and experience of the individual, and is there pay equity? If you look at recruitment, how do we in this very diverse world and community of where we live and thrive and serve our patients, create a workforce that is diverse, that is high performing with high results, and deliver incredibly high quality healthcare. And it all leads back to who is providing the service, who's making the decisions, who's extending the service to our patients. And at our organization, we believe it is the diverse team that provides the highest quality of care every single time. So if you look at workforce relations, you know, a part of human resources, 
where are the concerns of the teammates experience and where can they express their concerns to make sure that they are valued and respected in the workplace. So a lot of the work that really embodies a high-performing organization in the area of diversity and inclusion really comes out of human resources. So, if, you know, if you just do a recount there, there's compensation and benefits, pay equity, access to benefits, there's hiring, diverse talent, there is the workforce relations experience to make sure that our teammates feel value and are performing at their highest level, learning and development as part of the teammate experience. So we happen to have just a large piece of the teammate experience as we practice good diversity and inclusion activities to promote our organization and our mission. So that is my kind of preferred model. It's the model I'm used to. Am I very familiar that you know, chief diversity officers or professionals who have the responsibility of diversity and inclusion sometimes report directly to the CEO. That is also a good model. You have the platform of passion and authority and the results are still there. In that case, probably D and I more partners with HR as opposed to be totally integrated. So I Deborah, think Yes. Let, let me ask you something on that point, because you bring up a very good point with respect to the issue of reporting structures. When diversity executives report directly to the CEO, does this kind of visibility make a difference in how diversity is perceived in an organization? Absolutely, 100%. I do agree that the voice of the CEO is critical in the success of totally integrating diversity and inclusion throughout the organization. However, many CEOs provide the platform and it is usually HR and diversity that are really given the accountability for the task. So we always want the president and CEO to be the champion and the spokesperson about the culture and framework of the organization. Understood. What about those organizations out there listening to us who don't necessarily have the resources for that kind of internal designation? If they were to task an outside consultant with diversity and inclusion, are they any less committed to diversity as a business strategy than one who designates an official diversity leader? I think as long as an organization is having the conversation about the value and the challenge of embracing a workforce based on inclusivity and diversity, you can create a high-performing organization. As soon as we say that there is value and it is an expectation that every contributing member is respected and provided a sense of belongingness and purposeful work, you are therefore then embracing the value of the appreciation of a diverse and inclusive workforce. So with a consultant, with a small workforce, with a mission dedicated to 
exercising and demonstrating the value of individual and group contributions, diversity and inclusion could look differently in any organization. Well put. Let me turn our conversation to other entities, if you will, who sometimes drive diversity. And a little context is relevant here if we're going to discuss legal as one of those entities. So the diversity journey has been a complex one for corporate America. Diversity really started as a companion piece to equal employment opportunity laws and affirmative action. So back in the 80s, it certainly made perfect sense that an organization's legal department was in charge of this portfolio. But now, more than half a century into the civil rights movement and the associated laws which arose from that movement, which were certainly intended to make more representative workplaces possible, is it time for corporate legal departments who maintain control over diversity and inclusion to let go of this piece? Are those organizations doing a disservice to the potential for what is possible in the diversity and inclusion space? I think it really depends on the leader of the legal office, um, our office of the general counsel, who the leader is and what are their interpretations of the law. And in addition to that, how do they see the law playing out within the organization in a way that is highly productive and engaging. So if you have a leader with a legal background, such as yourself, that understands the broad parameters of an inclusive workforce and the values of high performance, new ideas, innovations, engagement, alignment, based on diversity and inclusion, I really don't think it makes a difference. However, if you have a leader that is only interested in the law and compliance, I'm not quite sure if you would get the true value of honoring a diverse and inclusive workplace. And then, Deborah, it's, doesn't it affect how the members of that organization in turn see diversity when it is inextricably linked to EEO categories of race and gender and ethnicity as opposed to some of the broader aspects of diversity like thought and experience and background. I think you're absolutely right. You mentioned 50 years. And so 50 years of interpretation, 50 years of a much more diverse workforce, 50 years of gaining great access to leadership roles and understanding how to produce highly productive, highly engaged workplace, it really depends on the organization itself. Do you want to be compliant or do you want to thrive? If you want to be compliant, then diversity with EEOC with a focus on compliance can be maintained. However, if you want to thrive, you could have diversity in legal, but it has to be a much broader perspective with knowledge of what creates a sense of productivity, energy, and engagement in the workplace. So it's about compliance or thriving. Good point. So, Deborah, is it fair to say that the success of 
a DNI initiative that resides with legal depends in many ways as to how well-rounded that particular department is. And the leader, absolutely. Fair enough. Let's consider human resources again. And I realize that this is your sweet spot. This <laughs> is where, after all, you have spent much of your time and where diversity has resided for most companies. Then I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a moment, Deborah. Is it not problematic that if we are saying that sustainable diversity initiatives must be part of an organization's fabric, part of its DNA, and really a business imperative, that such initiatives cannot rest the department that is primarily dedicated to personnel policies and practices. And this is obviously not meant to minimize the very critical role that HR is to all organizations, but are there any lost opportunities when diversity and initiative is strictly a function of HR. I absolutely see your point. But I would say probably over the last 20 years, many of the HR departments that you quoted in the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 100 are best practice companies where HR itself is not looked upon just as compliance. HR has now moved into the framework of being the architect of a great place to work or being the architect of uh, creating highly engaged teammates that thrive internally and externally with service and commitment to work and the mission of organizations. So if you look at kind of the new framework of human resources, you know, some people even are called chief people officer or they're the architect of the people strategy. I think organizations have stepped back and really defined what is the value that the individual brings to the organization, what needs to be invested in that organization for the individual to develop and for the organization to enjoy their development their contribution to the organization. So if you're looking at that typical HR model, I could understand your point about it being a deficit. But if you're looking at world-class best practice organizations with high teammate engagement, HR is the architect, but also the facilitator. So a lot of organizations today are broken up based on different disciplines or regions. And you can see D&I committees throughout the organization based on reporting relationships, disciplines, geographic positioning all adding to one single organization and one diversity initiative. So I think diversity and inclusion is much more spread out. If you're looking at generational diversity, this new workforce, all they know is their belief that their individual contribution is made richer by the group because that's the way they were taught in school. So they are much more receptive to the diversity of the workforce. How is the success of an organization's D&I initiative ultimately dependent on who's in charge, Deborah? You know what? You talked about small organizations having a commitment. And I've seen 
grassroots, entry-level professionals, when given permission to start support groups or to start sharing different kinds of international foods, have very successful programs because the workforce itself is interested in developing itself and motivating itself. So it's about the people you hire. You hire quality people who are high performers and interested in their development and the organization's success, people will find a way. Now, you know, that's not to say that as they find that way, they do not hit the complexities and the challenges of diversity inclusion. So at that point, that's when it's nice to have a professional, a consultant, or an executive to facilitate how do we get to the best practice in the best way to enrich and engage the workforce. Now, I am a firm believer that the employer is responsible for the development of their workforce. But if we take that into consideration, that commitment, we can absolutely see where those opportunities spread out to families and communities. And this conversation about the value of diversity and inclusion becomes much broader than the traditional aspect of the employer and the workplace. Absolutely, absolutely, and Deborah, you know, you have been very balanced in addressing both the pros and the cons of legal and HR and a designated uh, officer. And at the end of the day, what I hear you saying is that it takes a myriad of personnel that is ultimately needed to build and champion that strong culture of inclusion. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Deborah, do you have any parting comments to share with our listeners? I would encourage every listener, if you have started your diversity and inclusion practice, please stay committed. The work itself brings great rewards. If you are thinking about what value a diversity and inclusion initiative could bring to your organization, Focus on doing the due diligence and understanding what other organizations have to offer in the development of your program. Final parting thought is there is value in recognizing, celebrating, and addressing the rich diversity of every single workplace. There is always an opportunity to emerge as leaders when we value diverse thoughts, people of diverse backgrounds, diverse religions. It brings in a perspective that helps us get to the best outcome every time. Regardless of who is running the show in the organization. Regardless. <laughs> Deborah Pusha-Moore, Chief of Staff of Carolina's Healthcare Systems, thank you so much for joining us today to explore this topic. My pleasure. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com if you have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. 
Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.